My name is Kevin, and I am one of the pastors here at Mosaic. And over the last few weeks, we have been uh, going through a story in the life of the people of Israel. And we've been talking about this guy named Jonathan and a heroic act that he did that changed everything. And so over the past few weeks, we've talked about how choosing is important. We've talked about the need for us to have courage and the need for us to take risks. And so if you've been with us the last three weeks, we've really centered our story and what we've been talking about, about this guy named Jonathan. And today, we're going to actually kind of pull out and see the bigger story that's happening here and talk about this guy named Saul, who's Jonathan's dad, and talk about uh, Saul and Jonathan and where we find ourselves in the midst of all of this. But before we do that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for how much you love us, that you love us so much that you sent your son to come and to work in the midst of our lives. So God, today we ask that you would search our hearts and our minds, that you would uh, point out anything in us that doesn't line up with the kind of life that you expect from us or you call us to, and today that you would call us into the kind of life that you're creating for us and want us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. The bigger story that's kind of happening uh, in the midst of the story about Jonathan uh, begins in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And 1 Samuel chapter 8 uh, is the first time that Israel asks for a king. Uh, Israel up to this point had never had a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the people of Israel come to Samuel, who's the prophet at the time, and they say to Samuel, we want a king because we want to be like everyone else. And so uh, Samuel's answer to them is, is, you can have a king, but here's the things that he's going to do to you. He's going to rule over you. He's going to oppress you. He's going to not be very nice, and you're not going to like it. And they say, no, we still want a king because we want to be like everyone else. And so Samuel kind of says, fine, you can have your own way. And God says the same thing, fine, have your own way, have a king, and be like everyone else. And so we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 10, and the first king of Israel is anointed, and his name is Saul. Uh, the description that we kind of are given of Saul is that he's really big and he's head and shoulders above everyone else. And, and which means, like, Saul's, like, pretty big and, and he's a big deal and everybody knows who he is. And so this guy gets anointed king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, uh, Samuel anoints him to be king. And Samuel says to Saul, wait for me in Gilgal. Wait for me and when I come, we'll offer a sacrifice and then we'll find out what God wants us to do. Fast forward a few chapters to chapter 13, and we find out what happens in all of this. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting at verse 7, and it goes like this. Some Hebrews crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking in fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said... Bring me the burnt offering and fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he was finishing making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, said Samuel. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. 
If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command, then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin and Saul counted the men were with him, and they numbered about 600 men. So this story introduces us to this guy, Saul. And immediately in this story, we can figure out a few things. Saul is really insecure. As soon as things start happening, he doesn't know what to do, so he just does what he thinks is best. Uh, he's full of fear. and We, we're no, we know that he's afraid of what's going to happen when all the men leave. And he disobeys God's command. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, we pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and this is the story about Jonathan. Uh, and if you remember, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, what we've been talking about is a story about Jonathan who uh, kind of asked this question, like, what if God actually acted on our behalf and gave us victory? And so he says to his armor bearer, hey, let's climb down this cliff and we'll climb up another one and then we'll see how many people we can kill. And so they do it and, and God acts and an earthquake comes and the people scatter and there's this great victory. But, like I said, the story doesn't end there. Right after this victory, right, right after God shows up and does something huge, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Saul makes an oath. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 14, 24. So there's this day of victory, and this is what it says. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day. Remember, this is the day that they just had this great victory. God showed up. They were in distress because Saul had, made, had bound the people to an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, for, uh, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Do you catch what he said there? He said, cursed be anyone who eats today before I avenge myself on my enemies. It's all about him. It, 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 don't, nobody else do anything until I've had my victory on my enemies. Not on God's enemies. Not, not till God avenges himself. Until I avenge myself on my enemies enemies. Jonathan isn't around when this happens, and so Jonathan, who's just had this great victory, just done this huge heroic act, is running through the woods chasing the people, and he gets hungry, and there happens to be honey all over the place, and so he dips the tip of his spear into it and eats some, and the men notice that this is what Jonathan has done, and so they say to Jonathan, hey, your dad said that you're going to die if you eat food, and this is Jonathan's response in verse 29. He says, Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for this country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of honey. Jonathan catches on that his father made this prideful oath. But again, the story doesn't end there. In chapter 15, just one chapter later, right after this amazing victory, uh, Saul is given a second chance. Samuel comes to him and says, hey, uh, God wants you to go to this nation called the Amalekites, and I want you to destroy everything. Wipe everything out completely. Don't leave cattle, don't leave sheep, and especially don't leave the king alone. Like, get rid of all of them. Wipe them out, destroy them. So Saul goes and, and he doesn't destroy everything. He brings back the best of the cattle, the best of the sheep. And in fact, he actually brings the king home and like kind of as a prize, like look what I did, uh, I, I did this. And, and then when he gets home, he sets up a huge statue for himself in his hometown. Like, look at the victory. I just accomplished. Saul comes to him and or Samuel comes to Saul and says, hey Saul, uh, you didn't do what God commanded you to do. And Saul lies and says, but I did. And Saul says, you know, I, I actually brought these home for God. 
is for God. I had good intentions. I brought these, these cattle, and I brought the king home to show God how much I love him. And uh, it's at that moment that Samuel looks at Saul and says, you've been rejected as king. God already has someone else in mind. Less than a chapter later, this guy David shows up. And David is anointed the next king of Israel. There's this kind of story that's happening in the midst of this big story. In three chapters, we learn really quickly that this guy named Saul messed up, that he let his fear and his ego and his pride and his insecurities and his disobedience run his life. But what the author's actually trying to get us to do is do this kind of compare and contrast. So there's this guy named Saul, and he did these things. And then there's these guys named Jonathan and David, and they live like this. And so it's something that happens uh, throughout this story that we have Saul who does these things and David and Jonathan who are characterized by these things. And so the author's trying to clue us in on something. There's something that's happening in these two stories that has to do with us, that has to do with us. I don't know about you, but I have a few high school regrets. Uh, At the first service, somebody told me that their high school regret was uh, every relationship that they had in high school, which is pretty fair. Um, you know, like, I, uh, for me, it's like ninth and 10th grade, all of it. You know, like two full years of my life. And I think we all have these regrets. And, and the reason I think we have them is a lot of times we have these stories that are filled kind of like Saul's. And, and, and we want to be like Jonathan. We want to have these heroic stories that are filled with courage and filled with risk. But our lives are often characterized by Saul-type mistakes. Our life are often characterized by fear and insecurity and disobedience, and yet we want the opposite. And so what we want to do today is kind of pull back and say, like, how does that happen? How, do, how, do you, how does this story of Saul and the story of Jonathan come together? One of my favorite books is a book called Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Um, if you haven't taken the time ever to read Screwtape Letters, it's a well worth your time. It's written uh, by C.S. Lewis from the perspective of a demon writing to another demon, which is always good for Christian books. And, uh, and what he does in this book is this guy named Screwtape, who's an older demon, is mentoring a younger demon named Wormwood. And the goal of the book is to try to really help you say, like, how does temptation work? How do, we sh- how do we wrestle through this stuff? And one of the favorite parts uh, of the book to me is at the beginning of the book when Screwtape, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, Uh, kind of about how this whole thing works. And this is what he says. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. It's the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He says it's it's not these big decisions. It's not the the decision to get somebody to go do something different. It's these little choices throughout people's lives that slowly leads them down to hell. And kind of the point of, uh, of what he writes there is that it's, it's in these everyday things that we do that we face these choices to either choose to do what God wants or to not. And so uh, I think the key to living a good story isn't just knowing that we need to have courage or knowing that we need to take these risks and knowing that we want to, but it's knowing who our enemy is and how he works. Because uh, what it comes down to is we do have an enemy and we need to know how he works. Uh, Before I uh, moved here, uh, I lived in Pennsylvania and before that, I lived in New Hampshire. And my wife and I uh, served as youth pastors at a small church 
in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Uh, and at that time, uh, that church was a Pentecostal denomination, which uh, I'd grown up going to kind of different churches. And so uh, when I started, like right after I started, they had a camp already planned. And it was with a speaker that I didn't know, and it was all planned. So I was like, being a good youth pastor, I was like, yeah, let's, let's go. You know, like, that's what you're supposed to do. And so we show up, and we had probably about 40, 45 kids with us. And we're there, and the, the guy gets up to do, like, the first talk. And the first thing he says when he gets up is he says, guys, I'm not going to preach tonight. I thought that was weird. Um, I was like, okay, you know, whatever. Maybe he's doing something cool. And, and so he asks everyone to kind of stand up, and if they, if they have any spirits that they want casted out of them, that, that he can do that. And at first I was like, this should be interesting. <laughs> and, and so this starts, this starts to happen, and he starts to cast out spirits, and me and my wife get, like, exchange several looks like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> and it's at this point that the one kid who it's his first time at youth group and his first time like, coming away on a youth group trip, uh, the speaker calls him and says, I want to cast out a spirit out of you. And so Jen and I were standing behind him, and we're just like, I have no idea what's going to happen. So he looks him in the eyes and says, I cast out the spirit of masturbation out of you. And I was like, I didn't know that was a spirit. Like, I, I didn't know that that's how it happened. But, but now I do. You know, like, I learned a lot that weekend. And I think, like, Jen and I had to have several talks with students. Like, so there's a little thing going on here that, that isn't necessarily what's really happening. And it was at that kind of point in, uh, in my story that I really started to dig into, like, who is Satan and how does sin work and, and what's all this? Because, like, it's really easy. Like, the denomination I grew up in, uh, it was really easy to blame Satan for everything. Like, like the spirit of masturbation. Like, it's really easy. Oh, I, you, he just has a spirit of masturbation. You know, like, <laughs> really? You know? And, and, and there's lots of things that, that, that are easy like that. You can cop out and blame someone else. But there's also this really thing throughout scripture that talks about Satan and the power that he has, but there's also this thing called self that we have to wrestle with. And so what I want to do today is kind of walk through like, how does the enemy work? But then also like, what can we do in the midst of all of this? So the first thing that we learn throughout scripture is that our enemy is invisible. Like, uh, maybe you remember like cartoons a lot and there's little things that pop up on your shoulder that probably won't happen to you. Like most often, our, our enemy works in ways that are unseen, that aren't smelt or, or touched, but it's felt. And what I mean by that is our enemy's goal is to distract us and push us away from who God's created us to be and what he's called us to do. And so the way that he works is through doubts and fears and lust and greed, all feelings that we have towards other people or towards ourselves. And that's the way he works, is through these feelings that we have to be able to distract us and push us away. So our enemy is invisible. The second thing is, our enemy is really sneaky. Like, he's just really sneaky. He'll do anything he can to distract you and shove you away from who God's created you to be. He'll lie to you. He'll seduce you. He'll, he'll tell you anything you want to get you away. It's why Saul in this story is able to say, well, I don't know if, if Samuel's going to come, so this seems good enough. He'll tell you that your intentions are good and everything will work out. He'll seduce you. Because the truth is, our enemy is lying and is always full of crap. 
Like he's always lying and always trying to push you away and always distract you from who God's created you to be and what he's called you to do. Our enemy is also a great compass. And what I mean by that is our, our enemy always points to the things that we should actually be doing with our life. See, the way that our enemy works is because he lies to us and because he distracts us, uh, he's actually reminding us what we're called to do. We can use our enemy as a compass, as kind of to point to our true north or of what we're supposed to do. And what that means is, for me, a rule of thumb kind of in my life is the more the greater the call of action or call of what God's called me to do in my life, the more resistance I'll probably feel to it. That means that when I feel fearful about things, that's probably the very thing that I should be doing. When I'm super insecure about something that I feel like God's calling me to do, that's what I'm supposed to actually be doing. And so I know that may be like, oh yeah. But what it means is that how Satan works as he plays on our biggest fears, our biggest insecurities, because he knows that that's what will stop us. And so a rule of thumb for our lives is to say, like, am I fearful? Is this something that's, like, trying to distract me from what I'm doing? Because if it is, that's how the enemy works. Our enemy always kind of points to our true north. He's a compass. The next thing is that our enemy is universal. Every person struggles with it. In fact, just in the story, the main characters of the story of, of Saul and David and Jonathan all struggle with temptation, all struggle with, with similar things, with pride and with ego. And so it's universal. It's something every person deals with. Every single person in this room deals with something. In fact, later on in Scripture, it says that no temptation has seized you that isn't common to man. Every person struggles with this temptation thing, with the way that, that the enemy works is to make you believe that you're the only one struggling with it. You're the only one wrestling with fear. You're the only one struggling with lust. But it's not true. Our enemy is universal. Every single person deals with it. And the last thing is, our enemy plays for keeps. Our enemy's goal isn't just to distract you for a little while so that then you can go back. Our enemy's goal is to kill destroy. In fact, later on in scripture, it says that that's his goal, that the enemy's goal is to destroy your life, to destroy the life that God has called you to live, to rob it from us. And so it, it reminds us that this battle is like an everyday thing. It's why in the story of Saul, it's not just once that he faces the temptation to disobey. It's multiple times throughout his story. If you go throughout the rest of Saul's story, it's again and again and again that he faces these things. It's an everyday battle not just one choice we make and then it's over. There's this everyday battle. In the Protestant tradition, we've kind of made heroes out of ultimate sacrifice type things. And partially, partially this is an American thing. Like we love movies where characters like heroically give it all. But when we read the New Testament, one of the things that we find again and again is that the kingdom of God is in the plain, is in the ordinary, and in the small. I mean, think about some of the stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. He talks about a mustard seed, which isn't very big, that that's what the kingdom of God is like. He talks about how there's this woman who lost a coin, and that that's what the kingdom of God is like. He talks about how it's like the one sheep who gets lost, and Jesus goes to find the one sheep, even though there's 99 in the pen. See, I believe that in the small and in the ordinary and in the plain, that that's where God shows up. And the truth is, is if you're not heroic in the small and the ordinary and the plain, it's going to be really hard to be heroic in the big 
things that God calls you to do. And see, it's these daily choices that we make that matter. And just like there's this enemy aligned against us, just like there's this enemy who's, who's all those things that we talked about, we also, though, have these allies on our side. Things that, that are plain and ordinary and seem small are these, these allies to help us in the midst of this fight. Because if we believe that our choices matter, if we believe that we're called to live this risky and courageous life, then our choices in every moment matter. One of our first allies is this thing called space. See, true spirituality is the opposite of control. True following of Jesus means this relinquishing of our control, of of giving up control of, of what we think our life should look like and how that life plays out. And so true spirituality means making space for who God is in your life. So for a lot of us, our initial reaction when stuff happens in our life, when we face temptations or when trials happen, our initial reaction is to do more to do more things, to attend more programs, to go to more church services. But in reality, the way you give up control of your life to say, God, I want you in my life, is to stop what you're doing. So the first act of someone who who wants to work through temptation and work past uh, the issues that we're facing is to stop and to make space for God. Because God is always speaking, always wants to talk to you and tell you what's going on in the midst of your situation. But so many of us are so busy We miss God in the midst of all of this. And so we face these things, we struggle through these things, and yet God is speaking and we miss him. So we need to make space, make space regularly for God so we can hear what he has to say. The next thing is, we don't just need to make space, we actually need to, the next tool that we have, the next ally is this thing called prayer. You see, uh, the opposite of this following God thing is ego, is pride. And so we talked about this a few, uh, last week when we said, you know, like, courage isn't the absence of fear, it's the absence of self. And what we're saying is, is that it's not just that uh, we no longer have fears, but what we have to move through is this thing called self, this mess of ego and pride. And so what prayer allows us to do is to come before God and say, God, like, I have to give up control. I have to give up, I have to surrender my pride, surrender myself to you so that I can start to live the kind of life that you want me to. So it's not just making space, but it's coming to God and saying, here's my life, ego, pride, failures, and all, and invite him to work in the midst of it. The next thing is this thing called substitution. Uh, growing up, uh, I always heard that you, like, you should give Jesus like everything, but nobody ever told me what I should take back. You know, like, they tell you, like, give Jesus your heart and he'll take your sins. And, you know, I was like, sweet, I what should I do now? Like, so I don't smoke weed anymore. Sweet. You know, like, I didn't know what else to do. And, uh, and in fact, like, I grew up hearing the story about Jesus where he would, like, uh, he cast out a demon out of someone, and then seven demons came back later and lived in the house. And I was always like, I, I don't understand it. Like, why doesn't, like, why do seven demons come back? And it wasn't until a little bit later in my life where I found this uh, verse that really helped explain some of it to me, like, what my life should look like after I surrender my life to Jesus. And it's this verse in Ephesians 4, 28. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says this. Thieves must quit stealing and instead they must work hard. They should do something good with their hands so that they'll have something to share with those in need. Paul says, if your life used to be characterized by stealing things from people, stop. 
Quit. Quit stealing. Quit doing whatever that was. And so if your life has been defined by pornography, he's like, stop. Quit. Quit doing whatever it is. Quit doing whatever sinful behavior used to define who you were. Quit doing whatever that is. And then he says, don't just quit. He says, uh, you should actually get a job. He says, work hard. And so his, his idea is like, okay, so you used to be defined by stealing things, but now you should be defined by working hard for things and giving that away to have something to share with others. Kind of the point that he's, he comes to is like, if you used to be defined by stealing, now you should become, be defined by working hard and being generous. And so he does this thing where he says, like, if you used to be defined by pornography, you should now be defined by, like, protecting women. If your life used to be defined by greed, you should now be defined by being generous. If you used to be defined by, by whatever, your life should be the opposite. The idea that he's saying here is because our enemy points to what we should actually be doing, what he's saying is like, whatever your life used to be defined by, God is inviting you now to say like, my life used to be defined by stealing things, but now I'm going to be generous and I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to have purpose with my life. And so he doesn't just say like, go work really hard, but he actually says, he says, do something good. Do something good that has purpose. So he says, uh, they should do something good with their hands so that they'll have something to share with others. He, he removes it from this idea of self. Remember, if courage is moving beyond self, if what we need to do in our lives is move beyond our pride and our ego and our self, then what we're invited to do by Paul is to say, my life shouldn't be defined about what I can get for myself by being a thief, but now it should be defined what I can do for others. So there's a substitution. Your life used to be this, now it should be this. What we discover in the scriptures is that that's what Jesus actually empowers us to do. That his work on the cross doesn't just pay for our sins and say, well, now you have a clean slate and everything's over. But he actually goes, now you actually have purpose. Where your life used to be characterized by these things, Jesus now offers us purpose in these new things. Substitution. The next thing is stupidity. I, I think for a lot of us, one of the things we have to come to understand is that cynics and pessimists and pessimists don't change the world. Cynics and pessimists don't change the world. Optimists and believers in a big God are the people who change the world. People who, who, who believe the world can be bigger than it is right now. A few weeks ago, there's this video that came out and it had, it's the most viral video of all time. It was about this guy named Coney. You probably saw it, or you saw someone post on Facebook, or you watched a news article about it, or read something about it. And a few days after it came out, uh, there was kind of like all this cynicism that started to come to the surface of most of us. Like, and so there's blogs and articles about like, but they're not doing enough. But they're not doing enough good. They only gave this much money. And I've kind of come to the conclusion, uh, the next time you make a 100 million viewed video, then you can talk. Because the truth is, most of us just need to do good and shut up. Or do good or shut up. Because the truth is, all of us find it really easy to be cynical and see the worst in everything. But the truth is, most of us don't do any good at all. We just talk about it. We can talk and see all the wrong things in everything. 
yet we're not doing any good. See, I think some of the most stupid people in the world are people like Steve Jobs, people like Charles Limbaugh, and people like Winston Churchill. Because nobody told them how impossibly hard the job ahead of them was. Nobody told them. And if they did, they were too stupid to listen. Like, and, and, and I think the thing is, most of us listen to our rational thoughts so much that we're unwilling to believe that there's this big God who can actually do big things. And we're so pessimistic and so cynical that we actually believe our own hype. We actually believe that we get it right and that God's not that big and can't do that big of things. See, the truth is, cynics and pessimists don't change the world. Optimists and people who believe in a big God change the world. And their lives are changed because of it. So be stupid. I know that's not normally something people tell you, but be stupid. Be willing to believe that that's how big God is. The last thing is, be stubborn. Be stubborn. Stubbornness is usually something like we think about and we're like, you know, that person's really hard-headed and they're stubborn. But stubbornness is kind of a way to be able to describe like people are immovable in their opinions. But the reason stubbornness is actually like an ally in this is that for a lot of us, uh, we get started on something and then we stop. It's the story of Saul's life. Like he's given a second chance, a chance to actually obey God. And he starts to, but doesn't follow through all the way. And so stubbornness is this ally for us because it actually allows us to say, like, I'm going to be in this until it's finished. I'm going to work through this until I, until I reach the end. So be stubborn. Whether it's you like the word perseverance or endurance better, stubbornness is really just patience in the right direction. It's like patience towards the right things, towards the things that matter. And so I think most of us give up too easily. We get started in living this life that God has called us to, but we give up too easily. So be stubborn. So what's the point of all of this? What's the point of these allies and this enemy? I guess for me what it comes down to is like we all have these choices that we make every day, and it's in these plain, ordinary, regular choices that we make every single day that like matter the most. Because for a lot of us, we may not come to a cliff and see the enemy on the other side and say, hey, let's go fight them. But today you may have the choice to like love or forgive or be generous or fight against your lust and your pride and your ego. And so we're all faced with these choices throughout our day. And we kind of believe that our choices at the end of our life, that's what the story will be left with. The choices that we've made throughout our days and our weeks and our minutes add up to the story that we're left with. And so at the end of your life, will you be left with a story like Saul? Will you be left with a story filled with moment, like story after story of disobedience and ego and, and insecurity and fear? Or will you be left with a story like Jonathan, who acted in the midst of his fear, who chose to do the right thing in the midst of his insecurities? You see, at the end of our days, we have, we'll have this story. And, and it can tell one of two stories. I can tell the story of obedience and, and action and courage and, and, or it could tell the story of fear and insecurity and disobedience. And so I guess for us the invitation over these last four weeks has been you have the choice today. You have the choice as you leave this place what kind of life you're going to live. You have the power to choose what your life looks like. Is your life going to look like Saul or is it going to look like Jonathan? Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for how much you love us. That you desire to work in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our insecurities, in the midst of our pride. And God, I ask that you would meet us in the midst of these fears, these lusts, these prides. God, I thank you that you desire and you give us allies to be able to help us move through the things that we're struggling with, the things that constantly we face. So God, I pray that today you would help us identify the areas in our life where we find the enemy at work. Whether it's in our pride or our egos or whether it's in our fears or insecurities. We pray that you would give us the strength to make space for you. You would give us the strength today to, uh, to begin to surrender the areas of our lives that don't line up with who you've created us to be. And that you would today help us to make that about face in our life to begin to shift where we place value and what we're doing and where our purpose lies. That you would make those things abundantly clear to us. And that today you would help us to have the strength and the courage to be stupid and stubborn. That in the midst of all the choices that we face today, all the decisions that we have to make to live the kind of life you want us to live or to not, that you would meet us in those moments. God, we believe that our life is made up. It will be made up of all these choices we make today for the rest of our lives. And so, God, we invite you into those moments, into our plain and ordinary lives, that you would give us the strength to make good choices. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time...